Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come check us out. Uh, go to thedispatch.com to see all our, our great free stuff, and then maybe you'll decide to become a paid member of the Dispatch community, which would be awesome for everybody. Okay, so today uh, it's kind of rare on on the remnant where we have someone on who I literally don't know. Just met him uh, this morning on the uh, on the interwebs. We had some problems with some connectivity issues, but I've wanted to do um, a sort of an explainer episode on crime stuff for a while now, and we went casting about for. Um, a criminologist dumb enough to come on this podcast. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, to find a criminologist that we wanted to talk to. And I used to, I used to be, and as we'll talk about, I'm sure I used to be pretty invested in a lot of this stuff in the nineties when I was a young policy gnome at the American enterprise Institute. Um, but I've not followed sort of criminology in a while. And so I just have a lot of questions and I thought it would be good to do is just sort of an explainer on the state of crime. So we got Sean Bushway, He's currently a senior policy researcher at the Rand Corporation, and um, uh, and he's on leave from uh, New York. Correct, help me here, John. I, the University at Albany, SUNY. Okay, I knew it was, it was one of these things. It's like you have to say the Ohio State University or whatever, and so I didn't want to get <laughs> it's at not of. Yeah. So, welcome to the Remnant. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm glad to be here. And I, can I, am I allowed to put uh, dumb enough to go on Jonah Goldberg's show on my Vita now? If you wish to, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, my, my, my dad had in the, uh, in the miscellaneous. <laughs> Who am I to stop you? Um, all right. So before we get into the deep weeds and all of this kind of stuff, what got you interested in this subject area? How'd you get into it? Uh, I love that question because I can't explain how I got into this in any kind of real way. Um, I had, uh, my first sort of foray into this topic or area was inspired in my, after my freshman year of college, um, where I, I was at Notre Dame, I was majoring in math of all things. And, um, I wanted to do a volunteer activity, Notre Dame sponsored alumni sponsored a volunteer activity where they basically paid you to volunteer for the summer. And I got into the program and I was allowed to volunteer at any organization that's sponsored by the United Way, because there was a Notre Dame alum who ran the United Way in Buffalo. And I picked um, uh, the first ward in Lackawanna, which is where all the steel mills were. Mm -hmm. And it's a heavily minority community. I was working in a, and I volunteered to work at a community center in their uh, daycare or their summer camp. 
day camp. And I was the only white person uh, in the counselor corps of 80 people. And I was just exposed to a whole new array of issues and topics that I'd never really been experienced. And I had a choice to choose all kinds of other things. And that was just something I was drawn, I, I was drawn to. And at the end of it, I, I probably figured out I wasn't going to be Mother Teresa, but the head of the program said, hey, you have really good analytical skills and we need people that uh, have good analytical skills. And over time, I sort of worked my way to a place where I ended up getting a PhD in economics and policy um, by accident. I applied for a master's degree program and I got into the PhD program at Carnegie Mellon, but I, was, I gravitated to the issue of employment, unemployment, crime, and issues of community, um, uh, and eventually became an expert in desistance and background checks um, uh, and the process by which people exit crime mm -hmm. um, and, and the role that, say, getting a job or not being able to get a job because of a background check uh, plays in that process. Um, so I've been, you know, up until the time I came to Rand, I've been a professor for 25 years um, in uh, criminology and policy departments, but focusing largely on crime policy and criminology topics um, around those kind of areas. And so uh, that's how I came into it. And uh, it's been an interesting process where now I actually, I really was interested in the policy side. And now I've started to have more influence and ability to talk about policy issues uh, uh, than I did originally. Um, does anybody at RAND still advocate for winning thermonuclear war i'm just curious <laughs> that you was that was herman khan's thing wasn't it um you know you know it's outside of my purview um <laughs> rand's a big place so um, I, I'm, I'm not i'm not sure i might be out beyond fair to rand it might have been that herman khan did most of that when he moved to the hudson institute anyway we, we can we can put a pin in that i'll i'll google it um i'll go check yes uh uh so i mean Let's just do a little level setting right now. Um, um, I understand that your focus is on the sort of the economics and labor market aspects of crime and all that kind of stuff. But how real is the current spike in crime in the United States? And do you have a theory about where it's coming from? Well, I mean, it's an interesting issue because crime itself has gone down. Um uh, continued to, you know, relative to previous trends, um, property crime during, in the last year has gone down something like 10%, um, pretty much across the board with the exception, I think of auto theft. Um, the, um, violence has gone up slightly. Um, some, some parts of violence is not the thing that's gone up and gone up quite considerably. I think it's 25% is murder. Mm -hmm. Um, so what we have is, uh, which is not a trivial is this, thing. <laughs> no, uh, well, so it, it, in terms of volume, um, you know, how many murders are there in a year, right? You know, it's something on the order of 20,000 mm -hmm. something like, so it, it's not a trivial number, but relative to the number of overall crimes that occur. Right. Um, but in terms of our policy, right. Murders do drive a lot of what we care about in terms of any kind of cost benefit analysis, um, if an aggravated assault costs two hundred thousand dollars and uh, murder costs seven million, um, then obviously we're going to be sensitive to murder. So yes, I, I agree it's a big deal, um, but it's it's not like everything has gone up. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's not. We're not uh, in most places. We're nowhere near where we were uh, in the nineties. Right. Um, you know, there's been a, you know, the number that I always like to remember keeps in mind is you know how many murders were there in in new york city in two in 1990 right it's over 2000 how many murders were there 
in uh, 2019. You know, don't quote me; it's ex- not exactly the right number, but 250 or so. Mm-hmm. So it's it's roughly a ten, you know, one tenth. Right. Um, and then you know, where did it go? Well, it went up to 400. So is that a substantial increase? Yes. Is it anywhere near 2000? No. Right. Um, so you know, don't get cavalier about it, right? Because you know, it's still you know, 100 more people died. But um, we're, you know, we're, the idea that we're in the same environment as we were back in the '90s is just simply not true. So, um, I want to talk about the '90s in a second. But you, um, do you have a sense of again ballpark? This is not a test on your the exactitude of your memory, memory, or yeah. how how quickly I can grab the Excel spreadsheets that are on my computer that I've opened up <laughs> for the questions. But among among murders, how many of what what share of murders are, um, again, not trying to dismiss anything, I just it's trying to put it in perspective, right? How many of them are stranger on stranger crime? How many of them are, uh, sort of domestic violence, uh, that kind of thing? I mean, um, I know that the disproportionately the victims, the black murder victims are victims of black murderers and white murder victims are disproportionately murderers of uh, victims of white murderers. Black on white crime is not nearly the issue that either it once was. So or the easy way of saying that is most murders are intraracial. Or intraracial. And a lot of murders are uh, intrafamilial, right? I mean, it's a lot of that stuff yeah. is it's you, you people tend to murder people they know. Um, as a general rule, right. but those are the ones that get all the headlines. Can you break down somewhere just as a ballpark, how that all breaks down? Yeah, I can't break it down uh, right off the top of my head. I mean, but the general sense that most uh, murders are of people that, you know, is true. You know, something like, I want to say between 80 and 90% of all murders are intra-racial. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really interesting study that, that was done that showed, you know, part of the problem here is that, you know, what gets covered in the newspaper? Well, the odd, the things that are different uh, get covered in the newspaper. So murders of women are more likely to get covered in the newspaper. So if you get your, if you're looking at, you know, obviously nowadays it's a little different and people don't read the newspaper every day, but if you compare the, the distribution of murders that are in, that actually occur with the distributions that show up in the in the newspaper, say back in 2000, um, you get a very different picture of what murders yeah. are because the things that show up are the things that are odd or different. So, um, a, a situation where a 19 year old uh, African American male kills another 19 year old African American male doesn't get a lot of attention, but the situation where an African American male kills a uh, 40-year-old white woman she he doesn't know gets a lot of attention, and so. Um, so that you know, it also relates to what you were talking about earlier, right? Perceptions are not fact, mm-hmm. and people's we we know fear of crime does not track actual crime uh, very well at all, um, and the way in which people get their facts about crime is not related, right? When we talk about you know the fact that crime, violent crime, has dropped eighty percent in this country, most people don't realize that mm-hmm. it's not it's not a it's not something people understand that they you know people often talk as if we are experiencing the same levels of crime as we had in the 90s and it's simply not true um and but but perception here is as you were saying kind of 90 percent of the game yeah and uh perceptions and reality here are, are tend to be pretty different it's a, you know it's funny i mean it's it's a it's a it's a bit of an analog to environmental stuff a lot of like if, if the you view surveys of young people about what they think about the environment put climate change aside for two seconds 
they think the environment has gotten nothing but worse over the last 50 years. And by almost every metric that you would have cared about 50 years ago, it's gotten better. Oceans are a side, you know, side story, but our air is cleaner, our water is cleaner, our forests are bigger. Um, uh, doesn't mean there aren't problems in other parts of the world and all that, but but just the perception and the way media coverage drives the negative causes people and a lot of educational institutions um, sometimes drives people to have a really out of sync con conception of where the where the world really is. So it that actually comes up a lot in criminology, particularly if you want to focus on trends. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that I struggle with occasionally. Um, in terms of wanting to have a conversation about the world as it actually is. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have a real problem with racial disparity in this country with our criminal justice system. Um, I can say that. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. um, we have to understand and explain and try to mitigate that. But it's, un but it's nonetheless also the case that racial disparity in this country and the criminal justice system has dropped mm -hmm. rather dramatically um, over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, and so such that... You know, drug sentences in the federal system used to be, you know, four years longer for an African-American male than a white male. And now the most recent paper said they're equal. Um, in New York, we did a study and it went from in 2000, something on like 15 to one for prison people in prison to seven to one uh, in state statewide for males uh, for all, in the entire United States. The ratio used to be eight to one. It's now five to one for women. It used to be six to one. It's now two to one. So these are huge drops mm -hmm. in racial disparity. That it doesn't, the problem is people think that if you're saying that, you mean that there's no additional thing to do or that everything's been solved. And I'm not saying any of that, right. um, but, it, but it, it does help, especially in a world where we don't seem to know how to reduce it, to understand that there have been dramatic reductions to see to learn um, you know, what to do better. In the same way, we've had dramatic reductions in youth violence and you know, that doesn't, and 70% you know, declines in the number of youths and juvenile detention facilities. And, and so that doesn't mean that we're at the level we should be or shouldn't be, but it, but we have a, if we can talk about what's happened to get us here, we might have a better chance of knowing what to do next. Right. Um, but it becomes hard to have that conversation when people are afraid that if you acknowledge the progress, you're sort of somehow saying that we're okay. And right. so that becomes a real problem in this space. Um, and you often find people talking about it as if these things haven't happened. Um, and they have. Yeah, I know. Look, this is a huge bugaboo of mine of just the the people who say we've made no progress on X, and X can be all sorts of different things. And this is this is a bipartisan problem. I mean, I, I still get a chuckle at the 2016 convention where Donald Trump said, and I think I'm quoting this exactly right. I may um, be all plus or minus one ever, but he said. <laughs> Blacks have never, ever, 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 ever had it so bad in this country, which is just a really difficult claim to support with evidence given, I don't know, slavery, Jim Crow, you know, there are lots of, you can just, which is not to say that things are going as everyone would like for the African-American community or anything like that. But you hear similar, you know, claims every now and then from left-wing activists about how we've made no progress since the 1950s or the 1960s. It's just factually not true. You know, just the number of interracial marriages in this country, you know, the, the surveys on how many people are willing to have, how many white people are, including white Southerners are willing, are, are happy to have black neighbors compared to even 40 years ago. Doesn't just because you've made progress doesn't mean you've solved a problem, but it's, it, 
you breed a lot of cynicism and anger at the system if you don't tell people there's been progress because then they think nothing can be done except much more radical efforts. Yeah, I mean, the policing situation is like that. I mean, if you ever have a conversation with someone who uh, has lived in urban environments for a long time and you ask them whether they'd rather have the police of today or the police of 50 years ago, the answer is never, oh, I'd like the police of 50 years ago, ever. Um, So I don't know how to make that, you know, it's a very difficult conversation, even in academic environments to have where you say, look, there's been progress. And and. And not to be all of a sudden an apologist or somehow saying everything's hunky-dory or that it's okay. And um, But on the other hand, if you're interested in, in progress, understanding and studying the progress that has occurred right. seems to be. But in the context of crime, the narratives are often, particularly around mass incarceration and other things, are just are often problematic. They're not based on... Uh, uh, the actual realities of the situation, and then they become sort of written in stone. Um, you know, so for example, and it's interesting because this is often a conversation that occurs among liberals as well. So if you think all of the people in prison are there because of drugs, mm-hmm. or that what our mass incarceration problem is driven by incarceration of of African Americans, then you're somewhat surprised to realize that you know, only 14% of the people in prison are there for drugs. And if you got rid of everybody today in prison for drugs, you would still have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, If you got rid of everybody that was a person of color from our American prisons right now, we'd still have about the same rate of incarceration as Russia, which is the second Mm -hmm. highest. So it isn't as if we've only incarcerated African-Americans. And in fact, there's been a 28% decline year, year after year after year decline in the incarceration rates of, of African-Americans, but uh, an increase in the incarceration rates for whites. But that's not the story you hear when you talk about mass incarceration. Um, and so, you know, at one level, people can are entitled to whatever story they want, but if you want to get out of the problem, and I do think that we have too many people in prison, um, then you ought to, you have to think about the real problem. And the real problem now is that um, if you want to incarcerate fewer people, you're going to have to incarcerate fewer people for violence. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to think about, you know, is there a tolerance for that? Because there, you know, it's one thing to say, we're going to not incarcerate the, you know, often called the triple nons, the nonviolent, non-drug mm-hmm. um, uh, folks, but there's only so many of them. And, and the majority of people when they're in prison, they're there for violent crimes. And so, you know, you have to have the hard tax conversation about, well, gee, we're going to incarcerate fewer people who commit violent crimes. Now, fortunately for us, violent crime has dropped a lot. And because of that, there's fewer people in prison. Um, and, and that's probably going to accelerate, um, even with this recent bump in, in murders, but um, and due in part to how we incarcerate people. But again, you know, if you want to be about policy, you, you do have to sort of fight your way to, to the facts, um, despite the fact that there are popular narratives for good reasons that 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 don't necessarily correspond to those facts in some way. Yeah. So this this I think that's all very well put, um, and I agree with it. Well, thank you. No, I agree. I, I, Am I getting smarter or dumber? <laughs> as I get well, I mean, I, I haven't I haven't proven that it's dumb to come on my podcast yet, but I'm going to get there. No. Um, uh, so the 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 number you use for nonviolent non-drug offender a uh, non, non-violent drug offenders uh who are currently in prison the non-violent non-drug offenders you know sort of so that you try to focus on a certain subset of people that may be going to prison for being in possession or um or who haven't you know hurt anyone or they're not repeat offenders or, or things like that 
it's just a relatively small subset of the population of people in prison. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question about that. I mean, because I've I've waded into this quite a bit back in the old days, and um, um, and I run into you know I used to pour over the BJS you know fact sheets and all this kind of stuff. Um, one of the things you'll often hear, I have friends who were former prosecutors, um, and they'll say that look, even a lot of the nonviolent offenses that people cite for um, prison inmates leaves out the fact that these were the product of plea negotiations because like 95% or something like that of, of prosecutions don't really go to trial and you plead down to, so a, to a lesser included offense for a lighter sentence and save the, the, the state or the city money. Um, but they would always say, look, they actually committed some violent crimes, <laughs> but they weren't going to plead to those. They were going to go to trial. Do you, is, is there now, because I have, I used to really struggle to find data for all that. One, do you think that is an accurate statement? And two, um, is there data out there? Is there, is, do, do, do they collect the crime that someone was charged with versus the crime they're actually convicted of? That kind of thing? Uh, there's more data of that than there used to be. It's instead of just focusing on convictions, we're, we're much more focused on, um, in part because of some of my research, most focused on understanding the process of moving from the crime to the arrest, mm -hmm. finally to the conviction. And so there are more data sets that allow you to do that. Um, and you're right. There's a lot of what you're calling, there's two kinds of plea bargaining. One is charge bargaining, where you negotiate on the charge that you're being convicted of. And the other is just on the sentence itself. And you can do both. And there's substantial evidence of both. Um, and so like there was a data set in New York that I've worked with that, you know, able to track folks. And it's true. There's lots of movement from, you know, very high level felonies to even misdemeanors by the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, it is a phenomenon. I don't think you have to work that hard though, because the majority of people in prison are there for violent felonies. Okay. I mean, even if you, if they've been convicted of a right, violent right, right. felony. I mean, this was a much <laughs> so, bigger issue back in the day when there were a lot more people who hadn't been convicted for violent felonies. And so the, in, in the late nineties, this was a big argument, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's still true that, I mean, there is, you know, people that are in for possession might've had, might've been trafficking, for example, in drugs. Or you know that you know you plead down to something else, um, or you plead to get away from the midst the the mandatory men, mm -hmm. or or things like that. Those things happen, and they do make the problem a little harder to understand. Um, but in the end, I mean, I think the reality is we've incarcerated. I mean, I think the the part that people don't understand, and the part that I've done a lot of research on, is that a lot of what causes incarceration now isn't so much the crime you committed, but how many previous crimes you've committed. Mm -hmm. So we really emphasize priors, in what we call priors, number of previous offenses, in ways that we didn't used to. The most common thing that most people are aware of is three strikes and you're out, right? So it's not what you committed, it's how many previous crimes you committed. Um, and three strikes and you're out was, is no longer sort of in vogue, but the basic idea behind that is, and that creates, I think, lots of problems. One is that you can have a big crime bubble like there was in the 80s, mm -hmm. um, which really swept up a lot of people and young people in particular. And then what that means is that any time they commit a crime in the future, even if they get a, even if their arrest rate declines, people in that cohort who get arrested are more likely to go to prison mm -hmm. than previous cohorts, not because they committed more serious crimes, but because they have a prior history now. So there's 
you know, so in other words, in the nineties, when there was this peak of crime that was largely concentrated among urban pe- males, mm-hmm. um, uh, those folks acquired records at much higher rates. And so even though they then offended at rates that looked much more like previous cohorts, when they were arrested and convicted again, right. they were more likely to go to prison. So it created like the, the rat and the snake mm-hmm. um, story. So in Europe, you know, when there, there was an increase in incarceration during the same time period, but then it went away in the United States. It was a 20 year hangover. Mm. Um, and my thought, my, you know, my thinking on this is that what's going on is that the priors that were uh, incurred during the crime boom keep coming back to haunt you. Right. Um, the good news is that, you know, the generation X is people your age, my age. Um, those those are the folks that got trapped in the eighties and nineties. They're now aging out, mm-hmm. um, and the folks that are Generation Z are committing crimes at rates that are at historically low levels, um, even with this latest boom. And um, and you know we'll have to see as this plays out. And what you're seeing now is that you know fifty percent drops in the n- number of people under the age of twenty five in prisons um, as that works its way through the snake. Um, what we're going to see is far fewer people in prison. Um, and so it's, you know, focusing too much on the types of crime ignores the prevalent, the the priority we've given to um, prior history, which we didn't have before. And a lot of other countries don't have. And so I, I think that's a mistake that we're making and we're going to repeat it. If there's another crime boom, Mm -hmm. the same problem is going to repeat itself unless we stop putting so much weight on priors. Um, in part, and that's, the reason why that's somewhat stupid is that when you go to Fort, I don't know, are we allowed to say stupid on your we show? Are, we are. Okay. Okay. So that may not be the smartest idea. How about that? Um, uh, where, you know, when you get to be 40 and you commit a crime and you're not probably preventing as much crime when you put that person in prison. Right. And what we've seen sort of unequivocally is that, um, the, the rates at which 40 year olds and 45 year olds are being admitted to prison there are, are at very high rates. And it's not clear what the crime prevention benefits of that are. Um, uh, so there's a number of reasons why that's problematic um, and could potentially uh, be causing a lot of the problems. But the good news is unless there's another crime spike that's you know, long lasting and dramatic, we are going to see fairly large drops in crime uh, in incarceration rates because the crime rates among Generation Z are just very low even now. So, I mean, understanding that this is complicated and that there are trade-offs on every side, um, you know, in the 1990s, there was a concerted effort to increase incarceration. My old boss, Ben Wattenberg, you always used to like to say, a thug in prison can't kill your sister. And the argument, and, and there were people like Morgan Reynolds who, uh, made these cases and the Bush justice department, first Bush justice department had the case for more incarceration report and all that. And, um, I, I, I take your point and reading some of your stuff. I, I take your point that part of the problem with putting a lot of people in prison is first of all, the thing you're just talking about with the, the emphasis on the priors thing, but also you acculturate people to, 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 to things that you don't want to acculturate them to. Um, all that said, do you think that the crime rate in the 1990s went down because of the increase of incarceration in whole, in part, or do you think it was utterly incidental to it? Oh, I, I don't think there's a lot of question um, about the degree to which um, incarceration led to some partial decline in crime. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's a consensus panel of, of uh, the National Academy of Sciences that's th- that looked at this question. Um, 
And I don't see a lot of people arguing that there wasn't any benefit. Mm -hmm. The argument is um, how much of it was caused by increased incarceration um, and was it worth the cost? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, so depends on. So different people have different estimates for what percentage of the drop in crime was due to incarceration. But I don't see a lot of people saying that none of the uh, of the drop was due to incarceration. So and and that makes sense. Um, I I just think that the. That it's probably unwise to say, you know, it it isn't it's unlikely that it was, you know, more than 50 percent at the at the high end. And it's, you know, probably much more like 20 to 30 percent. There's also community Um, policing. There were a lot of other things being done. There were a lot of other things. And it's often, you know, these are these are not trends that only happen in one or two places. And so when you have these kind of global trends, it's hard to then um, explain them. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are people like Steve Levitt who argue that it was abortion. Um, uh, there are other people that argue that it was led, um, uh, and there are some arguments for this, but it's, it's, it's probably never going to be nailed down, mm-hmm. uh, one way or the other. My personal take on it is that the things that happened in the mid nineties were had a lot to do in the 80, mid eighties and nineties had a lot to do with the crack cocaine markets and urban environments mm-hmm. there. This was a dramatic, uh, shock, right? We had 50% increases in the number of people that went to foster care in New York city in one year, roughly speaking, you know, so this is, you know, this had a huge impact and it led to increased gun carrying and other things. And eventually that burned itself out. People stopped using the drugs, the distribution changed lots of things. And, and when that changed, so did other behaviors. And so um, there's, it's not hard to show that uh, people have less unstructured time than they used to. People have less prevalence, uh, less preference for risk than they used to. And someone's, in other words, you don't have to explain a drop that was caused by a set of circumstances that no longer exist, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We're just, um, and you have to be, you know, so if you think it's abortion, you have to explain to me why we're just back to the level of crime that we had in the 60s. Mm-hmm. We didn't have abortion in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, think it, I think it's more about the, the sort of social phenomenon that happened in the time. Mm-hmm. And then those things change and and, um, and they no longer exist. And as a result, we went to a different frame. But crime trends are hard. They're not like business cycles where it's sort of the same basic phenomenon explained. I mean, every crime trend is sort of explained and motivated by a different set of factors. And so um, it's, it's hard to predict crime. Um, it's e- relatively easy to explain in retrospect. But in the future, it's, it's not a predictable trend. Mm-hmm. Um- well, I have, I have a lot of questions on it, but I, I, just before I forget, I remember reading about Marvin Wolfgang. That's that's his name, right? The criminologist who, in 1945, studied a big sample of kids in Philadelphia, and yes, and came to a conclusion that my at least my recollection of all this is that, um. I think his number was 7% of the kids committed 50% of the crimes, but whether it was seven or whatever, it doesn't matter. The general proposition being that a huge outsized portion of crimes are committed by a very small group of people, regardless of race. I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of like a Pareto distribution kind of thing where a very small group is responsible, sort of like in healthcare something like 1% of patients are responsible for like 20% of the costs. You find this kind of thing, these kinds of distributions, lots of places. Is that still believed to be true? Do you think that is still true? Where, where, where would you put that number today? I haven't seen a lot of evidence that it's not true. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think it's largely, you know, we, 
we think of this as a right tail. Mm -hmm. um, so there, you know, there's a difference between prevalence, you know, that what well, we, we have seen a, a fairly big drop in prevalence, the number of people that are involved in crime in general. Um, and then, and that's the primary thing that drives crime rates. But then there's also a change in frequency um, amongst those who commit crimes. And it is true that that distribution is highly skewed, mm -hmm. i.e. there's a few people that commit a lot. Right. Um, but the lar largest phenomenon that's going on isn't so, I think, that, that it's not fundamental shifts in the distribution, but rather just fundamental shifts in the overall prevalence. Mm -hmm. um, at the rate at which people are involved in crime, there's some evidence that people drink a lot less than they used to. Um, you know, overall attitude towards crime has gone down. So that you know, but so that the it's not so much that there's a change in the frequency among those who are involved, but there are just fewer people involved in general. And so the pool of, um, as a result, the pool of high frequency people that Goes you're talking about is also smaller. Right, right. So, all right. I, I know this is an unfair question to throw on you, but since you talked about there was a national Academy of Sciences panel that reached some sort of consensus about incarceration. What is the reigning theory about why from, was it 1958 or so to 1993, crime increased sixfold? Like what, what caused that crime surge to begin with? Or what, what, is the, what are the reigning explanations for it? Um, so there's sort of a two bubble, right? It's a, and it kind of depends on which trend you want to look at too, right? It depends a little bit if you're thinking about murder or other crimes but sort of the um since you are bucking for your master's degree if i'm still a professor i might <laughs> might, might might say that you've passed your comp because you know who marvin wilkane is and um so then you probably know about the 1968 crime commission mm -hmm. uh, president's commission on crime which is a uh, quite a famous report that sort of you know was the start of modern criminology um and you know that was initiated in 1968 because of this huge rise in crime and they're talking about all the things they need to do to combat the huge rise in crime and of course you know what happens after the report is crime goes up by another three or four times mm -hmm. uh so um and so what caused the crime in the 60s it's probably different than what caused the crime in the in the 80s um i think amongst in the 80s there's fairly strong consensus that it's that it was uh, a phenomenon that was largely in urban areas mm -hmm. Um, it was driven in large part by open air drug markets and crack cocaine. Um, it was driven by gun carrying and the prevalence of gun use. Um, some of it was economic over turf wars and other things. Um, other was, you know, sort of a, sort of a putting a cap on the general social, uh, isolated concentration of disadvantage that was happening in the seventies and eighties as a result of the um deindustrialization of american cities mm -hmm. so it was sort of a combination of you know uh, sort of white flight and black flight where these communities were heavily disadvantaged were in largely concentrated disadvantage so if you think about the first word of lackawanna when i was volunteering there in 1986 right there wasn't anybody left who could have moved um and um so i, I think it's it's that's fairly strong consensus mm -hmm. i mean there's a piece by a liberal sociologist in Harvard that talks about this. You have to, and it, it's somewhat uncomfortable because you have to acknowledge that this was particularly centered in say African-American communities. Mm -hmm. um, but the good news is that's also been declining. That's why you get a 28 year, year over year after year after decline in incarceration rates and arrest rates for African-Americans because um, that was there and it's not there anymore. Um, so I think that's a fairly good consensus. Mm -hmm. um, 
um, about what happened, that it was some combination of um, a phenomenon of uh, uh, related to drugs that then also built upon sort of this emptying out and um, hollowing out of middle class and upper middle class from the urban, urban core. And one of the things that's happening now is there has been much more uh, people moving into urban areas. Um, there's been a focus on sort of the gentrification that's negative, but the vast majority of that is actually positive and it hasn't displaced anyone. And that's not surprising in an environment where, you know, places that were at 30% capacity, they have a lot of room uh, and they have a lot of empty housing stock. They have a lot of places to accommodate more people. Mm -hmm. And if the problem in the larger frame was the absence of the middle class, the return of the middle class is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to look the same as it did before. It might be whiter or whatever. But in general, if the problem is concentrated disadvantage, then the solution is less concentrated disadvantage, which involves people moving back in. And um, and I think that's happened. Um, work with Patrick Sharkey has been showing this. And you know, the stuff that gets the attention is the few overheated markets where it displaces people. But largely, it's been a positive thing. And a lot of that's because crime has gone down and people are willing to move back into places um, that are relatively safe. Um, and so, um, and so there's been more willingness for people to move and the places are, are healthier than they used to be. Yeah. Uh, and that's a good thing. I think that's a hugely important point. And, I, and just in case, cause there was a lot of stuff in there, listeners missed it. One of the things that drove, oh, darn it. Uh, you're, you're like my, you're, you're like the, the critic. Says, I say too much. <laughs> no, no, focus it's on one thing at a time. No, it's good. I mean, it's like, I, I, like my students, you say too much. <laughs> um, be simpler. No, 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 I, not simpler. It just, it, you know, th this point about concentrated disadvantage is, I just think hugely, hugely important. You know, the, I live in Washington, DC, grew up on the upper West side of Manhattan in the seventies and eighties. So I, you know, not far from where Death Wish was set. You know, uh, I have some Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, in, well, Hell's Kitchen is a little further down, a little right? bit south. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, but you know, my entire childhood, when I was a little little kid, I lived on 84th and Broadway. I wasn't allowed to walk past 86th Street because it was too dangerous. And then by the time I was in like junior high, I wasn't allowed to walk past 96th Street because it was too dangerous. And um, by the time I was visiting from college, I could walk past Columbia into Harlem, and it was fine. You know, because things really changed a lot but um but in dc one of the things that drive that drove a lot of the problems in dc is this concentrated disadvantage thing it's that the black middle class moved out because crime scares black middle class families as much as it scares white middle class families and and so they all moved out to the outer the the inner suburbs and because for schools and for less crime and all of that and the people who were left behind who couldn't afford to move were left dealing with the problems of of north of northeast you know dc crime 1980s crime era era um and they were the disproportionate victims of it and and this is why i generally i agree with you sometimes markets can get overheated but gentrification is probably a net good for a bunch of different reasons depending on the the, the the circumstances or at least middle classes moving back into cities is a good thing i think for everybody um just a quick point about the dc right mm -hmm. so dc is the only place in the country where they had a county that was majority white that went majority black it's prince george's it's on the east side yep. in maryland when it went when it went from minority white to majority black its income went up right 
because it was blue collar white and they became um, upper class uh, African-American. It was all the government workers, cops, firemen, mostly black moved out there and very wealthy subdivisions and Bowie and other ones that are all largely all black. Yeah. Um, And so I think, yeah, I think that I think this idea that somehow there was a re there was some, a real health communities that were central city communities that were integrated uh, economically that were all black because there was no other place for people to go. Mm -hmm. Um, The Harlem Renaissance was a big part. It was, has a big part of that story. Right. I mean, even you don't want to talk about the Tulsa, uh, uh, massacre that's right. getting a lot of attention that community was highly integrated income wise uh, the hill district which is hill street blues in pittsburgh was much the same way mm-hmm. but when people were allowed to move um they did mm-hmm. and um as a result uh you know so black flight becomes part of the problem too uh but not not in any way that you want to blame anyone um but if income constant you know and concentrated disadvantage is a big part of the problem then part of the solution is and i think it's you're doing a disservice i mean Patrick Sharkey's work is really good here. The vast majority of places that have seen their income rise and their income distributions increase have not displaced um, uh, the poor folks mm-hmm. that live in these communities. And it's because we're talking about cities that have literally a third of the people that they used to have. Yeah. So there's plenty of open stock. Um, and some of the stock is quite nice. And so you can do a lot of things before you start displacing people. And in the majority of you know places, maybe 80, 85, there has been no displacement to, to, according to the census. Now, it would be interesting to see with the most recent census what they find. But um, in general, you, know, you can, and if that's this, you know, and so I'm not a sociologist, but if you're a sociologist, if the problem is concentrated disadvantage, then how can it not be a good thing mm-hmm. when people are more willing to move into cities? And cities are always dynamic. People are always changing where they live. And this is not a... This is not a, you know, it's not, cities are not static. Mm-hmm. Uh, c- cities that are static are dead. Right. And, and so I think it's, I think you just have to get comfortable with the notion that things are going to change um, and, uh, and not concentrate too much on sort of the one or two outliers where it's potentially problematic. So I don't want to put you at a disadvantage because odds are you didn't see it, but there's a piece in the Washington Post today from a professor at UC I want to say UCLA, definitely University of California. And um, the headline is, I'll read it to you just so I can be honest with everybody. The headline is the racist roots of campus policing. Um, Campus police forces developed as part of an effort to wall off universities from black neighborhoods. Now, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I am totally open that, you know, if you look at the stuff that happened in Columbia and and Berkeley and 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 U Chicago, that's all fine. It's a complicated story, but he goes for a dozen paragraphs talking about um, all this stuff before the word crime even appears in the op-ed, and when it does, it's in scare quotes and like having. You said we're Gen X, you know, um, I went to college in the early nineties in Baltimore County, not Baltimore city. Um, and I had friends who gone to everywhere from university of Chicago to Columbia to lots of urban schools. Again, stipulating that there was probably racism involved in some of these decisions that's on, on the margins at some places, but the idea that these universities, which 
even back then were staffed disproportionately by white urban liberals were acting primarily out of racist bigotry rather than among other things, responding to a spike in crime or responding to the fact that a lot of parents didn't want to send their kids to a school and in bad neighborhoods um, or crime plague neighborhoods. Also, you had a wave of sort of feminist concern about campus rape stuff, which was back then more less concern about date rape and more concern about stranger rape. Um, It just, it seems, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about writing this. This is why I want to ask you about it. Uh, it's just sort of serendipitous. It seems to me that a lot of this narrative stuff that we were talking about earlier wants to make it seem like concern about crime in the 80s and 90s was primarily a stalking horse for racism, when in fact it was a concern about actual crime. I mean, I grew up in a crime-ridden city at a crime-ridden time. It was not I mean, I can swear it just wasn't primarily, oh, I don't think there's, you know, it wasn't primarily driven by, by racial animus. The crime might have sparked racial animus, but you're getting the causation backward there. Um, anyway, I just thought I'd ask you about it. Yeah, I think you had, I mean, I think, you know, sociology, go back to sociology. Sociology has theories about why people commit crime and who would be most likely to commit crime. And it's, um, and it has, there are no theories that say it's because you have a gene that makes your skin black or white or purple, but they, it is related to poverty and um, family status and lots of things. And it is, in fact, also the case that those things are correlated with race. Mm-hmm. So this shouldn't, this, it doesn't have to be an inflammatory comment to talk about um, uh, where crime, you know, that there are higher crime rates among, where there are more death rates among um say African-Americans. I mean, as you pointed out, the victims of most of the crime in the, in Asia, you're talking about the murder rates in New York city, they're primarily African-Americans and the, uh, the, the beneficiary of the drop in homicides, um, in the last 30 years have been primarily Mm -hmm. African-Americans. One estimate is that it's increased the life expectancy of African-American men by a full year, which is pretty dramatic. So, so I think, you know, you have to be careful, uh, and talking about these things, but but it's also not as surprising that this certain phenomenon are not going to occur unilaterally across different groups, given the economic disadvantage and social isolation and many things that are probably the root causes of a rootly caused by systematic racism are in fact going to differentially affect different groups. So that that's not uh, to me highly controversial. Um, the question then becomes, what are police doing? Mm-hmm. And and you know. I, even if you go to the University of Chicago to this day, one of the things you notice is that around five o'clock or whenever it starts to go dark, every lawn spot in Chicago starts to have a private security officer sitting on mm-hmm. it um, because they worry about crime. And that's because people aren't going to send their kids to the school if their kids are getting killed or assaulted or robbed. And so, so, you know, so the, 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 I think the real way to think about this is that Policing is highly fragmented in the United States and people do a lot of private security and they're going to be concerned about the safety and security of the people that they're trying to provide safety and security for. And if that's a highly localized concept, Mm -hmm. that could be exclusionary because in some sense it becomes, if most of the people who go to the University of Chicago are white, then you're primarily trying to provide safety for white folks in an environment that is largely, we're talking about the South side of Chicago where the, it's majority African-American or majority minority. So it becomes the, the the police are trying to provide public safety for one particular group because that's 
who's funding. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case in other places, right? So when you have highly fragmented police, when you're talking about public safety, the question becomes which public? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's often the public that's funding that particular police force. And and what we probably want to talk start talking about is public safety of everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you have highly, you know, there are 18,000 separate police departments in the United States and they are defending turf in a way and providing public safety for the residents of their community. And that can, in fact, create an us versus them mentality. That's probably not overly productive. And it's worth noting is not in fact, the way most other countries do policing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, since you read the 1968 report, you know, the single (laughs) biggest problem in a criminal justice system in America is its fragmentation. Um, And it, in a really, if you're talking about public policy, the question, you know, you talk about the criminal justice system, but it's so highly fragmented with different forces and groups that are at the sort of the, the sort of, I don't know, gatekeepers or the people that are the stakeholders in any given setting. It's not surprising that some people are being excluded and some people are being included because the people who are running the local police department will see their constituency as the people who live there. So if you live in a small suburb and and you get stopped for speeding and the cop is often likely to let you go because you're the you're the person he's protecting. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you came from outside that suburb um, and you were speeding, you're going to get a ticket. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's it, it's relating to how we've shaped. Whereas like if it was if the county, if the police department was the county and everybody was in the county or the or the state, then you wouldn't have that sort mm-hmm. of which group you're in. No, it's an interesting. So I've, I've stunned you into silence. No, no, no. It's an interesting point. I mean, it's an interesting way to think about it. I think I just set a record for the most of <laughs> the longest time on your podcast where you weren't talking. Conceivable. Um, uh, yeah, no, no. Nick, can we get a time on that? <laughs> it's 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 a good it's a good point. Um, it does feel like I mean, just getting back to the campus police point of it. You know, a friend of mine who went to the University of Chicago in the early nineties. He said, you know, they went to the local liquor store and it was the closest liquor store to campus. And it had those giant bulletproof windows with the rotating, you know, the sort of uh, revolving door uh, kind of thing to give the money. And the guy, the place was owned by a black guy and it was, you know, run by a black guy. And and like it wasn't racism that caused him to put the bulletproof plexiglass up. It was concern for physical safety, I think. And I think that the the literary way we talk about policing distinct from the, where it came up, uh, you know, what it, what, what policing does sometimes leads us astray. And that's, so that sort of gets me to another question. Um, I think uh, putting on my pundits hat, a big chunk of the sort of mainstream media has not helped the Democrats by giving as much oxygen as it has to this idea of defunding the police. And if you just look at polling of blacks and Hispanics in this country, they are not in favor of getting rid of the police, right? I mean, the polls say a majority, a super majority want either the same amount of policing or more, Uh, a significant chunk say less, but saying less is not synonymous with saying none. My hunch is, is that virtually no one, there's a very, very small group of Americans, regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, want to actually get rid of the police. And yet that idea for a big chunk of the last year in the pages of the New York Times, on MSNBC and elsewhere was treated as a very serious position 
with real world possibilities. Um, I'm wondering what taken literally, right? I, I understand moving resources to mental health and all these kinds of things, but taken literally, you know, as, as there was literally a op-ed in the pages of the New York times that said, yes, we literally mean abolish the police. That was the headline. Is there anybody in criminology who actually believes just getting rid of police is a serious point of view, like a serious argument? Um, I mean, I think it's hard to talk about criminology as it's a monolithic thing, right? Criminologists are a group of people that study crime. It's not like economists where they all have a similar sort of approach to, you know, theoretical or quantitative methods or something. So, yes, I'm I'm 100 percent sure there are criminologists out there who, who think that. Um, uh, I don't. And so, I mean, I think the, the problem I always have is, you know, National Academy of Sciences has shown that policing does prevent crime in the short run. Um, I mean, it, it isn't we do not think that the policing do not have an effect on crime. Um, uh, is it possible that we're still policing at the levels that we did in 1995? Um, in a world where there's not nearly as much crime. And so people are experiencing pressures in ways they didn't before. Yeah, sure. Um, and so that's, that's, that's true. In fact, right. The arrest rates have dropped a quarter of what they used to be, but we still have roughly the same number of police. Um, so the policing rates have dropped a little, but not, not, not a lot. So we are, you know, we're, we're policing as if it's a different environment. So maybe we could change some of our tactics given that crime rates aren't the same. Um, but I, my, problem or concern is, I mean, if you're thinking about who's suffering, uh, if you believe in the Ferguson effect or the or blue flu or whatever, you know, that people are pulling back in response to these things, the people who suffer are in fact, not white folks, mm -hmm. but folks who live in these communities that are, uh, you know, so the, the increased murders are largely not white. Um, and so, you know, I worry about who's the, who, who's, who's losing in this debate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, particularly when you're talking about increased murders. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do think that there is a room for a conversation about whether we should be policing in the same way as we were in the nineties when, sure. um, but, but I, I also think that there's something misleading about the, um, you know, we need to do mental health or other things instead of, mm -hmm. um, remember we used to have a fairly robust mental health system that we dismantled. Right. Um, uh, because we thought it was unfair, you know, so the, the police aren't sort of jumping up and down saying, send us your mentally ill. We'd love to deal with them. Mm -hmm. It's just that there is no other place for them and hospitals say they can't hold them. And, but we used to have a, a very different, you know, and there were a lot of people institutionalized mm -hmm. that aren't institutionalized now. Um, and we decided we didn't want that, but, but it's not so much because the police decided they would like to deal with this instead. But the other thing to realize is that one of the things that people forget is that the government in the United States, city governments, county governments are involved with many of the same populations that are involved in, in for providing services. At the same time, they're also involved with the criminal justice system. So there was this in the 2000s, there was this, you know, million dollar blocks. They would go in and find places where we're spending a million dollars to incarcerate people and talk about how we should use these resources for other things. Mm -hmm. Well, the million-dollar block for incarceration is also the million-dollar block for welfare and mm -hmm. the million-dollar block for housing and million-dollar block for healthcare, and and so we we there it isn't as if there's a separate group of people that are not being served by 
all the other safety net kinds of things. And then there's a set of people that are involved in the criminal justice system. And what we need to do is move them from the criminal justice system over into these other mm -hmm. services. In the vast majority of the cases, they're already involved. We right. call that comorbidity. And so the question is, maybe can we do other things? Um, can we you know, maybe not work at cross purposes because we're trying to help you over here and we're trying to punish you over here? Um, but it's really not about creating new services in many cases. It's about um, trying to find ways to make the services you have work better and maybe work across silos, but because it's oftentimes the same people in both settings. Yeah. No, um, the, my only quibble is what you said, and I understand you're speaking it as shorthand, but is when you said we decided to let all these people out of these institutions. Um, I think the the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill was not something that we had the kind of debate we should have had at the time it was it was it was one of these classic examples of when you get a weird left right bipartisan consensus you know you're in trouble <laughs> because you had the sort of aclu thomas Saz libertarian crowd married to a bunch of people who just didn't want to spend money on on suffering mentally ill people get together combined with a handful of sensational journalistic reports and we tore apart a system that has led to enormous numbers of people living on the streets. And I don't think that anybody back then thought that that's what they were going to be getting. And I, I wish you could have a serious conversation about all that stuff these days, but it's, it's, I mean, cause it's, 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 it's just amazing. The 10 cities you see in DC now, but really in New York and San Francisco under highways and freeways. And that's just not the mark of a civilized country. And, um, but anyway, but I, I take your point. Um, okay. just a couple, I, you've been very generous with your time. A couple of quick fire questions is broken windows theory, something that you can talk about in polite criminologist company anymore, or is it gone out the window? So to speak, no pun intended. Well, I'm not a policing scholar. Um, so I, I don't, uh, I tend to be fairly broad, so I can talk about fairly, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I think, I think you have to distinguish broken windows theory, um, from some of the practices that are associated with that. Mm -hmm. So broken windows was not go out and arrest everybody, right? That's not what it said. It said, if you worry about things that look disordered, um, you could prevent crime, mm -hmm. right? So you could, by worrying about social order and physical order, um, uh, you will um, create environments that are less likely to, to involve crime. And so that's actually fairly reasonable theory. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think it's, no one said that's not true. The question comes up as to when you turn that into a policing philosophy, what does that mean exactly? Mm -hmm. And I don't think in the original conception, it was go out and arrest a bunch of people, right? It was pay attention to disorder. And I think that there was a, you know, I think there's some evidence that that, that was true. In part, in part, if you think about it, right? If you send a lot of cops into a place, it's not like people are robbing people in mid in open daylight in front of the cops. What are the cops going to pay attention to, right? They're going to pay attention to more minor things. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing about school resource officers. You, 
it's community policing. You put them in schools and they, they say, well, they end up worrying about little things. Well, that's because that's the only thing there is to worry about on a day-to-day basis, right? right? And the question is, so the, the question then is, are you criminalizing minor behavior? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that people get upset about, right? It's the stop and frisk that might have been criminalized or targeted certain groups. Um, and so, um, and the degree to which you're sort of making things that aren't criminal, criminal, or, or, or uh, and so that's the criminalization of minor behavior. Um, but I think there's lots of things police officers and others can do to maintain order that don't necessarily involve arresting people. Mm-hmm. Um, these don't have to be the same thing. Um, and, and in many cases aren't actually. Uh, and so I, I think there's some confusion about that. Um, and I think I find in the school debate about getting rid of school police officers, and they say, we should go back to the way it was. Um, and the question is, well, what was it before you mm-hmm. had a police officer in school? Well, you know, there was a, you know, what happened is there was, for the most part, things weren't dealt with, with the police, but when there was a crisis, the cops came running in, grabbed people, threw them up against the wall, you know, and, and now cops know some of the folks, they, they, they have relationships with people, they get involved in minor things, but they, they're community policing, they're members of the community. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they actually the evidence is they move people away from the juvenile justice system and others. So I think, I think we, we have to have a conversation in this country about, you know, do, are we comfortable with community policing in which that means community p- police officers are going to be involved in day-to-day life about relatively minor things and what should they be doing and what kind of discussion they can have? Because what the, a lot of the movement seems to be here to put the police into a box where the only time they get involved is if there's a serious problem. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to come in and bang heads when they do that. That's, that's what you do when there's a serious problem. And so maybe that's all we want. Maybe we just want a group of police officers that bang heads. But the, the movement about policing was about community policing, right. moving more towards integrating police into the regular community and finding alternative ways to solve problems. And so I, I think that's not a conversation we're having, but we need to. Because I'm not sure we want an environment where the only time you see a cop is when there's a crisis. Um, I mean, that was the old but, complaint, right? Is the cops were staying in their cars. It led to the militarization stuff. They would just show up from not being nine one one responders rather than trying to head off and engage and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's weird that people are nostalgic for that because I remember that was the complaint, particularly about the LAPD. But you know, um, back in the day, is that they were too disengaged. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely hear people saying that, and I wonder particularly in this anti-SRO um, phenomenon. And, you know, it's um, it's worth the debate, but I, I also think that the absence of evidence on a lot of these questions is kind of striking. Mm-hmm. But I'm a researcher, and I, you could argue I just want job security. So <laughs> I don't have any credibility when it comes to say you should have more research. But um, All right, so uh, two things. One, just because I mentioned it earlier and I forgot to add something. When I mentioned Morgan Reynolds, he used to be a researcher at the National Center for Policy Analysis. He went on to become, I believe, an economist in the Bush Labor Department, 2001, 2002-ish. And then he completely went off his rocker and became a 9-11 truther. So I just wanted people to know that I am not endorsing any of that. Um, I was really shocked to find that out. And I just want to leave that out there. But then more seriously or more importantly, um, so this is a question I often ask, and then I'm often horrified by the answer by, so uh, you can take it anywhere you want. 
Um, but I often like to ask people who are specialists in something like if you had your druthers, if you basically had, um, the ability to convince Joe Biden and a majority of members of the house and the Senate to do X, to, to improve the stuff that you're studying, um, to improve the quality of life, to improve prisons, whatever it is, pick it, you know, what, what is, what are a couple of the bucket list ideas that you think real reform would look like? Not promising that it's going to work, but that you think your best guess. Um, it's interesting. Uh, you're always scary about giving academics power, right? <laughs> uh, it's also the reverse, right? Academics often sit around complaining about how no one listens to them. And then when someone does listen to them, they're like horrified. Um, but I, I think, I think what we've got a situation in sentencing where we raise the bar too high. We don't have a proportional, uh, we created a proportional sentencing system with no ceiling. Uh, so I think the, one of the easiest ways to solve that problem would be to create a, uh, a ceiling on the amount of punishment that we deliver. Um, because we've, we've decided in this country that we're going to be retributionists and do proportional sentencing, but the hot, the, the upper level is infinity. It's the death penalty or life without parole. So I, the first thing I would do is institute a, a maximum sentence of 25 years or something. Mm -hmm. um, it's such that all the other sentences had to be less than that. Um, I think the fact that you can threaten someone who's an accomplice of murder um, with a lifetime sentence uh, and get them to plead guilty to five years is rife for all kinds of miscarriages of justice. Mm -hmm. I can tell you a story where someone who's only had a 20% chance of getting convicted would plead guilty irrationally. I think that's horrible. I think it, when the world we have full of plea bargains, um, you know, that kind of thing creates all kinds of injustice. Um, and so I think I would, I would dramatically lower the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that would then have a trickle down effect in particularly important ways, uh, that would affect lots of things, including racial disparity. Um, the second thing I would do is, um, uh, I would dramatically de-emphasize the role of priors in a lot of what we do. I, I think we would should punish on the basis of what you did, not on how many times you've done it. Uh, for the most part. Um, so I think that in that, that would institute things like mandatories. And because I think those things create uh, discontinuities that provide lots of power for prosecutors that, that are, that are, that's really problematic. Um, uh, I would have a conversation about the, the use of more systematic rules for deciding how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very concerned about this backlash against sort of algorithms as if the alternative is better, which is a bunch of people, judges and individuals making decisions, which I can show you is full of problems. Um, and I think you can debug an algorithm way easier than you can debug a racist judge that's been on the bench for 20 years. So I think I, those are some of the things I think about in the context of sentencing and, and where it, you, know, you could have a fairly large effect just by doing that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the policing situation, you know, I, I think we just have to have a, a conversation about what it is that we're trying to accomplish. But the biggest problem is we're not dealing with the problem that we have. We're dealing with the problem we used to have. Mm -hmm. So if I could, you know, get the Biden administration or whatever, I, I would get them to sort of think about what's happening now, given that we have had dramatic drops in violence and the racial disparities dropped. And what, what have we done right mm -hmm. um, that has led to this that we can build on? And, and, and really focus on maybe the things that happen that are good in, in communities or urban environments such that crime has dropped and try to build on that rather than focus on 
the police as if the police are the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in, because the priests aren't the solution either. <laughs> so when you've seen all these drops, it's not because the police did it, right? It's because other things happened. And so I, I don't know if that's punchy enough. You're probably horrible. Are you horrified? No, I'm not horrified. I'm not horrified. But um, okay, good. Oh, good. I, I, I'm not only stupid enough to come on your show. I've not horrified <laughs> you. So this. Hey, look, and the, the, the stupid enough to come on my show comment was was an attempt at being self-deprecating about me, <laughs> not about. Oh no, you. it's fine. Um, but. Uh, no, I, when I get the backlash, I can say, well, you know, you said I was stupid enough to come on the show. I, I know, I know, I, and I'm going to be very generalized about this. I, I know people who are, who have been well-established experts in their field. And then you ask them, okay, what would you do about it? And they say, wouldn't touch it, wouldn't do anything. And it's like, I don't understand how you can spend your life studying something and not at least have theories about fixing problems. And um, so I'm always kind of interested to see um, uh, what people sort of say to all that kind of say, say to that question, because sometimes you get like, I think, you know, if I, if I'm putting on my punditry hat, there's a lot in there that you said that I think has real political problems of ever happening. Um, oh, yeah. And, but I you didn't ask me if it was politically feasible. Yeah, no, no, I know. I understand. And that, it, so that's the, that's part of the fun part of the question is when you ask people, okay, all the political wins are at your back, what would you actually do? And it kind of takes them. Sometimes it takes them off guard because, you know, and I just sort of think it is interesting. Okay, so listeners, like literally mid-sentence because of these technical issues, uh, we stopped recording, and uh, and and so Sean and I have now been chatting for some twenty-five minutes on uh, all sorts of eggheady things. We've solved most of the world's problems, but like the Library of Alexandria, we'll never be able to restore any of it, and we're not going to revisit it now. So, if there is some sort of weird abrupt ending in this i apologize but that's just where we were i mean sean if you remember what you were saying at that moment we can try (laughs) but um um but otherwise i want to thank you for doing this um if there's anything that you feel like you i want to spare you the agony of the esprit d'escalier of the the feeling of oh i should have said x or y so if there's something else that you want to get in that you feel like i didn't let you get in feel feel free to throw it out there uh, no, I think I, I think I should just admit that I had fun, uh, and, <laughs> and I was glad you invited me on. This was a, it was an interesting conversation, and uh, I pre- appreciated the opportunity to to um, to talk about things that I think I know something about. Hopefully, um, my my six my child in sixth grade once wrote a whole report about uh, that I was famous in my own little world, and it's. <laughs> which is which is largely true so it's always fun when you get to talk to other people and 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 um and then maybe uh expand the world in which people know who i am so my kids can say that maybe it's a little bigger world so uh well i mean i i think it's it if you can find the right experts and sometimes the right experts are actually the wrong experts but if you can find the right experts it's always useful to have these kinds of conversations just because as you were saying at the very beginning the narratives on right or left. I mean, it's, it's just like this country more and more political conversations are driven by, by narrative maintenance and narrative agendas rather than trying to do fact finding or disagree on, on what's going on in the real world. And it, then we, what's interesting to me is that I'll talk to people. I mean, I have no idea what your actual politics are, but I'll talk to people way to the left or way to the right or somewhere in the middle who actually know what they're talking about. And there's a lot of room for agreement and nuance out there. Um, if you're doing it in good faith and you're not just interested in pushing a political or a, 
or an activist kind of uh, narrative. I think what's interesting, you asked me how I got into this and I wanted to influence policy, but I knew I was probably not going to be a politician and I wasn't going to be Mother Teresa. I would, you know, I have analytical skills. I have a BS in math. I'm good at thinking my way through problems. And, and so I did want to have an influence in policy. And it turns out, you know, I think when you're young, you think that means that you're going to testify in front of Congress, but it, it tends, it happens in lots of different ways, participating in the narrative and, um, you know, sometimes participating in lawsuits and all, as an expert in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes, you know, I find it frustrating when academics don't want to participate in these kinds of discussions because it takes too much time or because it's somewhat uncomfortable or whatever, but you can't say you want to be influential in policy and then not talk about your stuff and, and not present mm -hmm. your opinion. So for me to, if I was to, you know, sit around my coffee table and complain about the fact that I think sometimes the narrative around mass incarceration is misplaced, and then I'm not willing to talk about it, then that, that's not fair and that's not right. And so I, I, I think it's interesting and important to have these kind of conversations and to expose myself to, to disagreement or conversations about it. And it's an interesting opportunity, even though I would, argue, you know, that's not what they train you to do when you go to grad school. Um, right. right. Yeah. So my, my job is to be as precise as possible and accurate as possible and write papers that four people are going to read, including my mom. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it's, it's an interesting exercise to do this. And uh, I'm very happy that you had me on and uh, I, I learned a lot and it was, it was a, it was a fun way to spend a couple hours. So thank you. Happy to have you, and thank you for putting up with all the, the garbage technical stuff. So I really appreciate no it. No problem. Okay, so uh, uh, Sean Bushway has left the studio. Again, thanks to him very much. I mean, it's one thing for me to inconvenience and yank the chains of friends and colleagues who feel obliged to do it, but I just met the guy today. Really liked him. Um, really interesting. You know, I would push back on some things a little bit not to say that he wouldn't have answers to my pushback um um you know for example i just don't think that well we don't have to get into all of that i don't want to like seem like i'm jumping on him after he's left the studio um but i think it, i think it is important to have these sort of explainer episodes where you just sort of walk through what smart people who study this stuff actually know about stuff and it can stand on its own um would like to do more of these kinds of things. And, um, again, if there are audio issues, we apologize. Uh, the podcast gods, um, have once again decided that, um, I must be punished and we've had technological issues for a few of a few of the last episodes. Um, and, um, um, I would make a, um, a, a inappropriate prison joke but i think that would be particularly inappropriate at the end of this podcast so i won't i'll just say that um i feel unfairly victimized by the podcast gods so um and i did look it up i i was kind of right about what my confusion was herman khan did talk about the you know uh, did study how to survive nuclear war um when he was at rand and then he went and founded the hudson institute so, but the, but the, the Dr. Strangelove stuff, um, uh, was, um, while he was at Rand and, and in fact, he was one of the inspirations for the, the whole movie, Dr. Strangelove, um, which is neither here nor there. I just figured I'd get it out there. Okay. So, um, please come by, um, subscribe to the dispatch if you can. Um, I have a G file up yesterday for, uh, paid members of the community that gets deep into the weeds of how um 
democracy is not all, only under threat from, uh, you know, people liberals hate. Um, liberals have their own history of having problems with democracy. I'll probably talk about it in the solo remnant tomorrow. Um, people should have gotten their uh, latest episode of The Hangover with Chris Starwalt um, in the feed, which is great. And um, I hope people are going to subscribe to that and listen to that. And other than that, I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.